Hey, Lexington like Radio Marie, and Christian watching at home. We're not presenting the show. This is the Promised Messiah Judaism, the Roy Showman. Hi, this is Roy Showman, and welcome again to Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism, the show on Radio Marie that celebrates the Jewish roots of the Catholic faith, or seen the other way around, that celebrates the ful- fulfillment, the full realization of all of the promise of Judaism in the Catholic Church and her sacraments. Well, we are obviously now in the period of Lent, and um, I hope, perhaps, of benefit to you, and I am certain of benefit to me, I wanted to spend the show talking about Lent, uh, talking about the 40 days of Lent, talking about the 40 days of Jesus's fasting in the desert, and um, about the role, basically, the role of fasting and mortification in sanctification. So I'm just trying to uh, enter more deeply into Lent in this period near the beginning of Lent, and uh, I hope to perhaps help some of you enter more deeply into it. So I'm just going to start at the beginning. Actually, I'm going to start with the Old Testament, since the show is supposed to underline the continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the continuity between Judaism and the Catholic faith. And so... Um, let me just kind of briefly begin by mentioning two things. One is the number 40 and the meaning of the number 40 in both the Old Testament and then uh, extended into the New Testament, that the number 40 is usually associated with a period of testing or trial or penance and or temptation. And let me um, just mention that uh, the, the underlying word in Hebrew that is translated as to tempt or temptation or tempting in English, and in particular in the New Testament, has a different shade of meaning than the word temptation does in English. When we think of temptation in English, we think of it in the context of uh, you know, somebody tempting somebody to do something wrong, almost with an overtone of seduction or or trying to lead somebody astray. But the underlying Hebrew word, uh, nisa, has much more of a meaning of putting to the test, a trial or putting somebody to the test. So that when in the New Testament, Jesus, when he's responding to the temptation of Satan, um, during his 40 days fast, near the end of his 40 days fast, you know, the, the three temptations, the, when Jesus says, you shall not tempt the Lord your God, with this strict English meaning of tempt, that's a little bit of a strange concept, because of course God is not about to fall into temptation. God is not about to succumb to the seductive wiles of the devil. However, with the Hebrew sense of the word Nisa, it makes far more sense because what it means is that you should not put God to the test. You should not essentially force God's hand, give him an ultimatum that will restrict his freedom of movement, so to speak, or attempt to restrict his freedom of movement. Uh, you, I mean, it's not incumbent on man to test God. You know, if you're really God, then do this. If you're really God, then do that. Or in the case of, for instance, Jesus's temptations in the desert where the devil uh, tells him, and I'll read the passage in a few moments, to throw himself off the pinnacle of the temple because 
God will not allow him to die and get smashed against the ground when he lands. Um, that really is putting um, putting God to the test. It's it's um, forcing God's hand. It's it's manipulating God through this uh, test. And so, um, for instance, when um, God calls Abraham to sacrifice Isaac on the top of Mount Mar- Moriah in Genesis 22, the um, some of the translations, some of the English translations of the Old Testament say that God tempted Abraham, and others say that God tested Abraham. And tested is, is far more accurate. He put God, he, excuse me, God put Abraham to the test. And that is what, um, I, I think that's a useful way to think of the concept of temptation in the case of Jesus being tempted in the wilderness. Although, frankly, Jesus being tempted in the wilderness has more of both meanings of being put to the test and also tempted because Satan didn't know that he was God. Um, and I'll talk about that a little later in the show, how much uh, Satan knew about who Jesus was at the time. However, when Jesus responds, you shall not tempt the Lord your God, there I think it's it's pretty clear that he's saying, no, I'm not supposed to put God to the test. I, I'm I'm not entitled to throw myself off the pinnacle of the temple in order to make God prove that he's going to save me. And I will make a little bit of a digression, a little bit of a personal digression here, because I used to be into extreme sports, in particular extreme skiing, but also hand gliding and some other uh, related sports. And I have no doubt now, after my conversion and looking back on those days, that part of the thrill of those uh, sports bungee jumping or hand gliding or extreme skiing is precisely because on some level you are daring God to let you die. You're actually, it it gives you a tremendous feeling of inflation and of uh, this kind of almost superhuman power because you are flirting with death very literally. I mean, you're doing things intentionally that that, um, would result in death if, if there's a momentary error or imperfection in what you're doing, and you're kind of um, inflating yourself with a kind of power of God in so doing. Um, anyway, that's all a bit of a digression, but uh, let me get back on the mainstream uh, and talk about the number 40 now as a number which both in the Old Testament and New Testament is associated with uh, temptation or testing or penance. And so some of the places, of course, where the number 40 appears in the Old Testament with this meaning is, uh, of course, we know about the Jews wandering in the desert for 40 years on their way to the Promised Land, and that was a period of uh, purification, a period of testing. And in fact, well, I'll I'll go on from there. I I don't want to get too um, distracted. Um, less well-known is the fact that when Moses went up on Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments, um, he went up on Mount Sinai actually twice. Both times it was for a period of 40 days, and both times he fasted from food and water in his time up on Mount Sinai. So that picture of Moses going up on Mount Sinai to, in some sense, begin the ministry of the Jewish people, the reception of the law, on Mount Sinai was really the inauguration of Judaism 
uh, was a picture in advance of Jesus going up on the Mount of Temptation, fasting also for 40 days and 40 nights to inaugurate, to begin his ministry. Of course, Jesus being the fulfillment of Judaism. So Judaism um, was brought to birth, so to speak, by Moses climbing Mount Sinai and fasting for 40 days and 40 nights as uh, Christianity was brought to birth Jesus' public ministry was brought to birth by Jesus going up on um, the Mount of Temptation for those 40 days and 40 nights and being tested. Um, the, um, uh, I'll, I'll just mention maybe one other uh, uh, similar situation in some sense in the Old Testament where the number 40 has a similar meaning of penance and of, of fasting and of... Um, I don't want to say earning God's favor, but proving one worthy of God's favor, is the case of Jonah, uh, Jonah preaching to the city of Nineveh. We all know the story of Jonah being sent by God to the pagan city of Nineveh to announce to them that God was about to destroy the city for their sinfulness. I'll just read that short passage from the book of Jonah, chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and proclaim to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Jonah began to go into the city, and crying, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least, the king of Nineveh arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and ashes, made a proclamation and published by the decree of the king and the nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything, let them not feed nor drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Let every one turn from his evil way and from the violence which is in his hands, who knows? God may yet repent and turn from his fierce anger so that we do not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, God repented of the evil which he had said he would do to them and did not do it. So the people of Nineveh, even pagans, um, fasted from bread and water for 40 days to get, began a 40-day fast. We don't know exactly how long it took for God to respond to them. But in any case, uh, fasted for a 40-day period and to turn away the hand of God, to turn away the wrath of God successfully. So again, we see that, mad I don't want to say magic number, excuse me, but that symbolic number, that significant number, that number with a tremendous intrinsic spiritual meaning and power being associated with a fast and with penitence and with a trial and with winning the favor of God. I guess I'll mention one other, because it's again so parallel, which is Elijah. Um, the, um, much of that story is familiar to many of us, but Elijah was this tr tremendously great, was the ultimate prophet of God before the coming of Jesus. Of course, when Jesus appeared on Mount Tabor, he appeared with Moses and Elijah, because Moses and Elijah were the two greatest figures of the Old Testament that preceded and in some sense prefigured Jesus. And Moses fasted for 40 days on Mount Sinai. And Elijah, in fact, also fasted from food and water for 40 days. 
um, after he had cut off the heads of the 450 prophets of Baal, and Queen Jezebel um, was out to kill him, um, Elijah um, lay down under a broom tree. I'll, I'll read the passages from First Kings chapter 19. Elijah was afraid. He went a day's journey into the wilderness, sat down under a broom tree, and asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life. And as he lay down and slept under the broom tree, behold, an angel touched him and said, Arise and eat, or else the journey will be too great for you. He arose, ate and drank, and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. So after eating that food, he fasted from food and water for forty days and forty nights when he went to the mountain of God and um, another phase of his ministry was inaugurated. So again, we see that period of 40 days and 40 nights of fasting uh, on a mountain or to a mountain preceding a, um, preceding a uh, opening up of God's favor and of ministry. So we see that Jesus' temptation in the desert and his period of a 40-day fast did not appear in a vacuum, did not just drop to earth with the New Covenant, with the New Testament, but was a continuation of this pattern which had been inaugurated really at the very beginning of uh, Judaism, at the very beginning of the giving of the law. So again, it's a picture of the continuity of the transformation between Judaism and Christianity, of the prefigurement of Christianity in Judaism. So um, having uh, laid that little bit of a foundation, Old Testament foundation, let me go to the temptation in the wilderness. By the way, I'm going to interrupt myself yet again. One of my great pleasures in life is leading pilgrimages to the Holy Land twice a year. Usually I lead one in late May, just at the end of the school year, and then again one in November around uh, Thanksgiving break. And on these pilgrimages, one of my absolute favorite places to go is the Mount of Temptation. And uh, whenever possible, and it usually is possible, we actually go up the Mount of Temptation, which is quite a significant mountain. You used to have to walk it. Now there actually is a cable car, which will take you to near the top. And we actually visit and pray in the cave where Jesus fasted for 40 days and 40 nights and where the devil tempted him. And that spot on top of the Mount of Temptation in that cave is one of my absolute, you know, first-tier prayer spots in the Holy Land. And another place where we usually go, actually, is the spot where Elijah cut off the 450, uh, the heads of the 450 prophets of Baal. Um, So anyway, the the places I'm mentioning in this talk are both... um, places. One of the one of the joys of uh, making a pilgrimage to the Holy Land is for the rest of your life, these stories, these incidents in both the Old Testament and the New Testament are not just words on a page, but they're physical places that you have the mental image of that you that are imprinted on your soul from having been there and are also imprinted on your imagination. Uh, because it's not imagination, it's memory. You you have the memory of the places. You have the memory of being there. And so the stories from the Old and New Testament uh, take on a, a reality, a, a vibrancy, an immediacy 
um, a, a substance, actually, a, a substantialness, which um, is very hard to have otherwise. Anyway, end of that digression. So let me read the passage. I'll read the, uh, the story from Luke first of the temptation in the wilderness. It, of course, immediately follows on the baptism in the Jordan. Now I'm going to go back again to my pilgrimages. Uh, again, on these pilgrimages, we first go to the baptismal site in the Jordan River, and then we go to the Mount of Temptation, following Jesus' path from when he was baptized in the Jordan to when he fasted on the Mount of Temptation. And you can see it's really only a few miles. It's maybe at most 10 or 12 miles from the spot in the Jordan River where Jesus was baptized to the mountain that he climbed for his 40 days fast. And finally, I will get back to the Lenten part of this program. But my next uh, pilgrimage trip is in late May of this year. And um, it's been full since, since last fall, but near the end of near the uh, beginning of the trip very often there's a cancellation or two of people who find they can't come because of illness or something like that which has happened this time so if you have any interest in in joining the may uh pilgrimage this year to the holy land uh, just send me an email uh, have roy talk at gmail.com or through my website salvationisfromthejews.com and i'll give you all the information anyway back to luke And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit for forty days in the wilderness, tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing in those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, God shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it shall all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him alone shall you serve. And the devil took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will give his angels charge of you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. And when the devil had ended every temptation, He departed from him until an opportune time, and Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee, and a report concerning him went through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. So, uh, this is, of course, a similar account in the book of Matthew. They are very beautiful, and they provide plenty of, of material for meditation, for hours or for days. Um, But we also have another, I believe, gift given to us by God, which is further details about these events in the life of Jesus, which have sometimes been given to mystics, to visionaries, and sometimes even to uh, visionary saints. And so, 
um, I, I am going to go into a longer description of Jesus's temptation in the wilderness, which is uh, provided to us from uh, Blessed Anne Catherine Emmerich. I'm not 100% sure whether she is a blessed or a saint, whether she's just beatified or a saint, but she's at the very least beatified if she isn't a saint. And she was a very unlearned, ignorant peasant nun in the middle of the 19th century in Germany who was a victim soul, who suffered greatly, um, was bedridden most of her life, subsisted for year, many years on just the Eucharist and received a tremendous stream of visions of the life of Jesus, which were then written down and compiled into books. Um, and uh, if you listen to the show a lot, you'll know that I love reading Anne Catherine Emmerich's visions to flesh out details from these events in the life of Jesus. And Mel Gibson, when he made the movie The Passion of the Christ, uh, based it entirely, uh, of course he based it on the Gospels, but the one thing he used in addition to the Gospels was the visions of Anne Catherine Emmerich. Uh, it's a very, very rich source of detail. So I will uh, start reading from her vision of Jesus's uh, 40 days in the desert, uh, fasting and praying and being tempted by Satan. Before I do so, um, I see already we're about a third of the way through the hour, so let me remind you that this is a live call-in program. The number here is 866-333-MARY, M-A-R-Y, which is 866-333-6279, 866-333-6279. And um, in about, you know, somewhere between 5 and 10 minutes, I'll take a short break. It'll be halfway through the hour. And that's a very propitious time, a very good time to call in because then coming out of the break, I'll just look at the call board and um, if there are any calls that have come in, I will uh, be in a position to take the calls and respond to them if you have any questions or comments um, about the show or f on the, because of what I said earlier in the show or about the uh, May pilgrimage or anything. Uh, you can call in then, and, and when I come out of the break, I will immediately look at the call board. Um, so with that, let me simply start reading Anne Catherine Emmerich's account of Jesus' 40 days fast uh, in the, uh, on the Mount of Temptation. Um, about one hour's distance from Jericho, Jesus ascended the mountain and entered a spacious grotto. This mountain rises to the southeast of Jericho, and faces Median across the Jordan. Jesus began his fast here, outside of Jericho. From the summit of this mountain, which is, is in some parts covered with low brushwood, in others barren and desolate, the view is very extended. Properly speaking, it is not as high as Jerusalem because it lies on a lower level, but rising abruptly from the low surroundings, its solitary grandeur is the more striking. It was night when Jesus climbed that steep, wild mountain in the desert. Three spurs, each containing a grotto, rise one above another. Jesus climbed to the topmost of all, from the back of which one could gaze down into the steep, gloomy abyss below. The whole mountain was full of frightfully dangerous chasms, 
400 years before a prophet had sojourned in that same cave. Elias also had dwelt there secretly for a long time and had enlarged it. It was at the foot of this mountain that the camp of the Israelites was pitched when, with the Ark of the Covenant, they marched around Jericho to the sound of the trumpets. The fountain whose water um, Elisus rendered sweet was not far off. St. Helena caused these grottos to be transformed into chapels. In one of them, I saw on the wall a picture of the temptation. The words of Holy Scripture, he was led by the Spirit into the desert, mean that the Holy Spirit, who descended upon Jesus at the moment of his baptism, when he allowed his humanity to be, in some measure, visibly penetrated by his divinity, impelled him to go into the desert to prepare as man in close communication with his heavenly Father for his vocation to suffering. Jesus, kneeling in the grotto with outstretched arms, prayed to his heavenly Father for strength and courage in all the sufferings that awaited him. He saw all in advance and begged for the grace necessary for each. All of his afflictions, all of his pains passed before me in vision, and I saw him receiving consolation and merit for every one. A cloud of white light, large like a church, descended and hovered over him. At the end of each prayer, spirits approached him. When close to him, they assumed a human form, offered him homage, and presented to him consolation and promises from on high. I saw then that Jesus here in the desert acquired for us all our consolation, all our strength, all our help, our victory and temptation, purchased for us merit in struggle and conquest, gave value to our fasting and mortifications, and offered to God the Father all his future labors and sufferings in order to give worth to the prayers and spiritual works of all his faithful followers in the ages to come. I saw the treasure that he thereby laid up for the church, and which she, in the forty days' fast, opens to her children. During this prayer, Jesus sweat blood. Let me just uh, underline something Anne Catherine Emmerich just said, that the treasure that Jesus laid up for the church during his 40 days fast is then poured out available to us during our 40 days fast of Lent. That this special period of Lent is a period where we have special access, so to speak, to the eternity of treasure that Jesus laid up during his 40-day fast, which our Lent is a echo of and a participation in. So let us not let those precious treasures drop through our fingers. Let us not forego them and let them slip through our hands, but let us rather benefit from them, acquire them, make use of them, by our participation in the fast of Lent. Back to Anne Catherine Emmerich. The divinity of Jesus, as well as his mission, was hidden by Saint, from Satan. The words, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased, were understood by Satan as spoken of a mere human being, a prophet. Jesus had already been frequently, and in many ways, interiorly afflicted. The first temptation that he had experienced was, this nation is so corrupt 
Shall I suffer all this and yet not perfect the work for which I came upon earth? But with infinite love and mercy he conquered the temptation in the face of all his torments. Jesus prayed in the grotto, sometimes prostrate, prostrate, again kneeling or standing. He wore, wore his customary dress, but ungirded, loose and flowing, his feet bare. His mantle and girdle lay on the ground nearby. Daily was his labor of prayer different. Daily did he acquire for us new graces, those of today unlike those of the preceding day. Were it not for this labor of his, our resistance against temptation would never have been meritorious. Jesus neither ate nor drank, but I saw him strengthened by angels. He was not emaciated by his long fast, though he became perfectly pale and white. The grotto was not quite on the summit of the mountain. It was an aperture through which the wind blew chill and raw. For that season it was cold and foggy. The rocky walls of the grotto were streaked with colored veins. Had they been polished, one would have thought them painted. There was enough room in it for Jesus, whether kneeling or prostrate, without his being directly under the aperture. The rock outside was overgrown by straggling briars. And now I beheld the angelic, the angelic band bending low before Jesus, offering him their homage and begging leave to unfold to him their mission. They questioned him as to whether it was still his will to suffer as man for the human race, as it had been his will to leave the bosom of his heavenly Father, to become incarnate in the virgin's womb. When Jesus answered, yes, accepting his sufferings anew, the angels put together before him a high cross, the parts of which they had brought with them. It was a shape, as I always see it, of four pieces, as I always see the wine press of the cross. Then Anne Catherine Emmer goes on to describe all of the symbolism she saw in and around the cross. I uh, will skip over that in the interest of time. Then there appeared before him, as in a procession, all those men through whom were to come the most keenly felt sufferings he would have to endure, the malice of the Pharisees, the treason of Judas, the insults of the Jews at his bitter and ignominious death. The angels arranged all, unfolded before the Savior, doing all with unspeakable reverence, like priests performing the holiest functions, while thus the entire passion was unfolded and passed in detail before his gaze, I saw Jesus and the angels weeping. On another occasion I saw the angels placing before Jesus the ingratitude of men, the skepticism, the scorn, the mockery, the treachery, the denial of friends and of enemies up to the moment of his death and after it, all passed before him in pictures, also those sufferings and labors of his that would bear no fruit. But for his consolation they showed him likewise all that would be gained for them. So um, I am in the process of reading the Anne Catherine Emmerich's vision of Jesus' 40 days uh, fast uh, and temptation in the desert. And we've come to about the halfway pro point in our program. And so I'm about to take a short musical break. As I mentioned a bit earlier, this is a live call-in program. And if you'd like to call in, the number here is 866 
866-333-6279 or 866-333-MARY, M-A-R-Y. When we come out of this break, I'll turn to the phone lines, and if there is a call that has come in, I will uh, turn to it, call or calls, after which I will continue reading the second phase of Anne Catherine Emmerich's Visions of Jesus' Temptations in the Desert, um, after the point at which Satan enters and begins to tempt him. Um, and uh, anyway, so that's, that's that for now. Let's turn to our music. You're listening to Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism, uh, with me, your host, Roy Shulman, on Radio Maria. And I'll be back in a few moments. Hi. Uh, welcome back to Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism. I have been reading today from Anne Catherine Emmerich's visions of uh, Jesus' undergoing of the 40 days fast and uh, temptation uh, by Satan at the end of the fast, uh, because, of course, this is land, which is a participation in that 40 days period of Jesus' fast, which was the inauguration of his public ministry, and it was also the uh, merit that he gained during his fast and undergoing that temptation that uh, has provided mankind with the strength to resist temptation. And so it's a, it's a kind of a pouring forth of graces. Uh, well, let me put it another way. That Lent is a pouring down on us special graces associated with what Jesus suffered and um, his fast during those 40 days and his resistance to the temptation of Satan. But uh, rather than tie myself in knots trying to ad-lib, let me go back to Anne Catherine Emmerich. And we've reached the point uh, where uh, Satan enters the picture. Satan knew nothing of the divinity of Christ. He took him for a prophet. He had noted Jesus' holiness from his early youth, as also that of his mother. But the Blessed Virgin Mary took no notice whatever of Satan. She never listened to a temptation. There was nothing in her upon which Satan could fasten. I asked myself how it was that Christ's divinity remained so concealed from Satan, and I received the following instruction. I understood clearly that it was the most incomprehensible advantage for, for men that neither they nor Satan knew of Christ's divinity, and that they were thereby to learn how to exercise faith. The Lord said one word to me that I still remember. Man, he said, knew not that the ser serpent tempting him was Satan. In like manner, Satan was not to know that he who redeemed man was God. I'm just going to repeat that sentence. The Lord said something to me that I still remember. Man, he said, did not know that the ser serpent tempting him was Satan. In like manner, Satan was not to know that he who redeemed man was God. I saw, too, that the divinity of Christ was not made known to Satan until the moment in which he freed the souls from limbo. Satan did not yet know what to think of Jesus. He was aware, it is true, of the prophecies relating to him, and he felt that he exercised power over himself, but he did not yet know that Jesus was God. He did not know even that he was the Messiah whose advent he so dreaded, since he beheld him fasting, hungering, enduring temptation, since he saw him so poor, 
suffering in so many ways, in a word, since he saw him in all things so like an ordinary man. In this Satan was as blind as the Pharisees. He looked upon Jesus as a holy man whom temptation might lead to a fall. Jesus was at this point suffering from hunger and thirst. I saw him several times at the entrance of the grotto. Toward evening one day, Satan, in the form of a large, powerful man, ascended the mountain. He had with him two stones as long as little rolls, but square at the ends. um, There was something more, excuse me, in each hand he held one of the stones, and his words were to this effect, to Jesus, If thou art the beloved Son of God, over whom the Spirit came at baptism, behold, I have these stones that look like bread. Do thou change them into bread? Jesus glanced not toward him, but I heard him utter these words only, Man lives not by bread. These were the only words that I caught distinctly. Then Satan became perfectly horrible. He stretched out his claws as if to seize Jesus and fled. I had to laugh at his having to take his stones off with him. Um, interesting that Jesus does not really engage with Satan. He doesn't look at him. But he only utters those words which are a uh, direct quote, of course, from sacred scripture. So that's worth um, dwelling on a little bit. Then I'll continuing with Anne Catherine Emmerich. Toward evening of the following day, I saw Satan in the form of a majestic angel sweeping down toward Jesus with a noise like a rushing wind. He was clad in a sort of military dress such as I have seen St. Michael wear. But in the midst of his great splendor, one might detect something sinister and horrible. He addressed boasting words to Jesus, saying something like, I will show thee who I am and what I can do, and how the angels bear me up in their hands. Look yonder, there is Jerusalem, behold the temple. I shall place thee upon the highest pinnacle. Then do thou show what thou canst do, and see whether the angels will carry thee down. While Satan thus spoke and pointed out Jerusalem and the temple, I seemed to see them both quite near, just in front of the mountain, but I think that was only an illusion. Jesus made no reply, and Satan seized him by the shoulders and bore him through the air. He flew low toward Jerusalem and placed Jesus upon the highest point of one of the four towers that rose from the four corners of the temple. It was on the loftiest point of the tower that Jesus placed, excuse me, it was on the loftiest point of the tower that Satan placed Jesus, who uttered no word. Then Satan fled to the ground and cried up to him, If thou art the Son of God, show thy power and come down also, for it is written, He has given his angels charge over thee, and in their hand shall they bear thee up, lest perhaps thou dash thy foot against a stone. Jesus replied, It is again written, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Satan in a fury returned to Jesus, who said, Make use of the power that has been given thee. Then Satan seized him fiercely by the shoulders and flew with him over the desert toward Jericho. While standing on the tower, I noticed twilight in the western sky. The second flight appeared to me longer than the first. Satan was filled with rage and fury. He uh, flew with Jesus now high, now low, 
reeling like one who would vent his rage if he could. He bore Jesus to the same mountain upon which he had commenced his fast. Satan flew with the Lord to the highest peak of the mountain, and set him upon an overhanging, inaccessible crag much higher than the grotto. It was night, then, but while Jesus pointed around, it grew bright, revealing the most wonderful regions in all parts of the world. The devil addressed Jesus in words something like these, I know that thou art a great teacher, that thou art now about to gather disciples round thee, and promulgate thy doctrines. Behold, all these magnificent countries, these mighty nations, compare them with poor little Judea lying yonder. Go rather to these. I will deliver them over to thee, if kneeling down thou wilt adore me. By adoration the devil meant that obeisance common among the Jews, and especially among the Pharisees, when supplicating favors from kings and great personages. As Satan pointed around, one saw first vast countries and seas with their different cities into which kings in regal pomp and magnificence, and followed by myriads of warriors, were triumphantly entering. As one gazed, these scenes became more and more distinct until at last they seemed to be in the immediate vicinity. One looked down upon all their details, every scene, every nation, differing in customs and manners, in splendor and magnificence. The only words uttered by Jesus were, The Lord thy God shalt thou adore, and him only shalt thy, thy, shalt thou serve. Depart from me, Satan. Then I saw Satan in an inexpressibly horrible form rise from the rock, cast himself into the abyss, and vanish as if the earth had swallowed him. At the same moment I beheld myriads of angels draw near to Jesus, bend low before him, take him up as if in their hands, float gently down with him to the rock and into the grotto in which the forty days' fast had been begun. There were twelve angelic spirits who appeared to be the leaders and a definite number of assistants. I cannot now remember distinctly, but I think it was seventy-two, and I feel that the whole vision was symbolical of the apostles and the disciples. And now was held in the grotto a grand celebration, one of triumph and thanksgiving, and a banquet was made ready. The interior of the grotto was adorned by the angels with garlands of vine leaves from which depended a, depended a victor's crown, likewise of leaves over the head of Jesus. The preparations were made rapidly in a marvelous order and magnificence. All was resplendent, all was symbolical, Whatever was needed appeared instantly at hand and in its proper place. The angels administered unto Jesus appeared under different forms and seemed to belong to different hierarchies. I saw at the instant of their disappearance all kinds of supernatural consolation descending upon the friends of Jesus, those of his own time and those of after ages. During Jesus' fast, Mary had resided in the house near Capernaum and had to listen to all kinds of speeches about her divine son. They said that he went wandering about, no, no one knew where, that he neglected her, that after the death of Joseph it had been his duty to undertake some business for his mother's support, etc. 
Throughout the whole country the talk about Jesus was rife at this time, for the wonders attended on his baptism, the testimony rendered by John, and the accounts of his scattered disciples had been everywhere noised about. Only once after this, and this was before his passion at the resurrection of Lazarus, were reports of Jesus so widespread and active. The Blessed Virgin was grave and recollected, for she was never without the internal vision of Jesus, whose actions she contemplated and whose uh, sufferings she shared. So there I've come to an end of the Anne Catherine Emmerich's account of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. Um, the outlines, of course, we know from the Gospels, but there is much additional um, visual imagery and many additional uh, small important details that are added in these visions. Uh, of course, we know the Gospels are 100% true and accurate. Uh, we do not know that any private visions, any private revelations are 100% true and accurate, not even if they are from saints or blesseds or venerables, as these ones are. So it is really a kind of a visual imagination that is given to us to um, fertilize our prayer life, let's say, to fertilize our religious imagination and to be accepted to the extent that it is um, fruitful for that and, of course, one is free to reject it to the extent that it contradicts it or that it seems to diminish it. But I find these very beautiful and uh, very telling. And it's also, of course, there are details which are very important to understand, such as that Satan did not actually know who Jesus was until after the crucifixion. That, of course, was tremendously important because, as you can see, in the movie The Passion of the Christ. By the way, I, I re-watch that every Lent or every uh, Holy Week, and uh, I can't recommend anything more strongly. But as is shown in that movie, Satan is basically defeated at the moment where he thought he defeated Jesus. In other words, it's when Jesus dies on the cross that Satan, for the first time, realizes who Jesus was and that in what he thought would be his victory, he has, in fact, accomplished his um, total defeat. And he screams in agony at the moment that Jesus dies on the cross, because that moment, which Satan expected would be Jesus' defeat and Satan's victory, was, of course, Jesus' victory and Satan's defeat. And so, by implication, of course, throughout the earlier period of Jesus' life, up to that very moment, Satan had to be ignorant of the fact of who he was. And at this point in time, when Satan was tempting Jesus, he thought he was simply tempting a very holy man and prophet, and he did not yet understand that he was the Messiah, much less the Son of God. We also saw in the additional little details here the role of the Blessed Virgin Mary, um, during this temptation of Jesus, we, we had the little details, very beautiful little details, that the Blessed Virgin Mary had never, um, had never been vulnerable to the slightest temptation. Um, uh, as, as Anne Catherine Emmerich said, 
The Blessed Virgin Mary had never taken any notice whatsoever of Satan. She had never listened to a temptation. Of course, we know this anyway from her being immaculately conceived and having been free from any sin, even the slightest venial sin, but still it's nice to have the image presented that she had been completely you know, uh, sh uh, immune from any approach of Satan, from any attempt of uh, uh, any temptation coming from Satan, and that during the period of Jesus's temptation in the wilderness, the Blessed Virgin Mary was in fact united with him uh, continually, uh, as um, uh, and uh, was aware. I, I actually don't think I read that short passage. I think that was with uh, part of the. Um, vision that I had skipped over, but she was united with him in prayer throughout his temptation as she was united with him throughout the passion, even when she wasn't physically present with him. And we can only imagine the uh, strength that that union in prayer uh, and the consolation that union in prayer gave Jesus during his temptation. And uh, the last little point that I'm going to underline before I've come to the very end of the show is that during this period, uh, remember this period was immediately after his baptism in the Jordan, immediately after everyone heard, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, and the Holy Spirit descended on, on him. Um, it's at the beginning of his public ministry, at his most powerful period, when he's about to bring about the redemption of mankind. It's also the moment of his... Um, uh, most direct attack by Satan, and that attack was the direct attack in terms of the uh, temptation in the wilderness, but it was also the indirect attack in the form of the worst vilifications and accusations being spread about about him, uh, to which Mary was subjected. So during this 40 days, while Jesus was undergoing this suffering for mankind, all she heard was all these accusations against Jesus about how he had abandoned her, about how he was just wandering about as a kind of uh, totally irresponsibly, no one knew where he was, that he was neglecting her, that it was his duty to take care of her, um, and so forth. So, And I'm saying this uh, to point out that it is precisely when somebody is doing the most good for God and is undertaking, uh, embarking on the most important mission for God that you will hear the worst vilifications about him, the worst insults about him, the worst accusations, the worst attempt to smear him. So um, I don't want to get political, but, you know, uh, as Monty Python says, what a nod is as good as a wink to a blind man. So anyway, one might think about where one sees this repeated throughout history, these terrible vilifications of people who are in fact Satan's greatest enemy and greatest champions for God. So with that, uh, it's t come time, a little over time, to close the show. You've been listening to Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism on Radio Maria with me, your host, Roy Showman, a show dedicated to Lent and to Jesus's 40 days of Lent himself, his period of, of fasting and temptation in the wilderness. And I hope you join us again next week, same time, same place, for Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism on Radio Maria. This is Roy Showman saying bye for now. Mm -hmm.